0: Father, we're thankful that our Savior is the King of all kings, and while it is disputed at this point because there are lots of people in the world who don't acknowledge that, there will come a day when it will be extremely clear—the Great White Throne Judgment. Uh, he will be seen as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and at some point in the future, all knees will bow and every tongue will confess that it's true. He is the Lord. To the glory of You, our Father, and and. Um, He will bring all things under subjection to his feet. He will destroy death. It's the last enemy to die. And so we uh, anticipate that and are confident in that. We pray that you would um, burn these truths in our minds as we look at your word uh, so that we can live more faithfully and more full of faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our life and resurrection. That's chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We know that Jesus Jesus literally died because he was buried, and we know that he was bodily raised from the dead because he appeared to 500 witnesses in multiple locations at multiple times. And it is this truth that transforms our lives. That is, that Jesus died and he is alive. This truth comes to us by the grace of God and changes us from enemies, like Paul called himself. I was a persecutor, but now I am an apostle. Uh, for us, we were enemies of God, and now we're part of his family. And so the resurrection is undeniable. For Christians especially, it is undeniable because we believe that he died, and we, we, have, we believe that he appeared to these people as well. Uh, we believe that he has been risen from the dead. And we see the effects of it on our lives. But in this next paragraph, beginning in verse 12, Paul wants the Corinthians and us to see that the resurrection of Christ is inseparably linked to our resurrection. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparably linked. That is, that, that we can't have one without the other. Anyone who denies one has denied the other. They are that closely linked. They are inseparable. We are in Christ. We are united with Christ. When he died on the cross, his death became ours at salvation. When he raised from the dead, he guaranteed resurrection to all who are united with him. So our union with him guarantees our future resurrection. And so... That's, I think, the point of the text tonight. Let's take a look at it together, beginning in verse 12. This is the Word of God. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ when He did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits; After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Gods? Now, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are inseparably linked. They cannot be uh, separated. Neither one of them can be denied. If we deny one, we've denied the other. So, Paul is going to address this issue that some of these people are believing. Notice in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you? So, it's not that all of the Corinthians believe this way, but apparently some had bought into the lie, what I'm going to call logical fallacy, that there is no future resurrection of the dead. That, that our dead-believing one, loved ones are not going to rise from the dead, we're not going to rise from the dead. And so some of these Corinthians are believing that. Paul's saying, let me show you the foolishness of that kind of thinking. And he's going to tie, them, tie it together, our future resurrection, with Christ's past resurrection and say it doesn't make sense. So here's the first thing that we see in verses 12 through 19. If there is no bodily resurrection for us, then there was no bodily resurrection for Christ. At this point in verses 12 through 19. If what you're saying is true, then Christ did not raise from the dead. and So he states the fallacy in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Here, Paul is stating their argument. Obviously, Paul doesn't believe this. He's going to say in verse 20, but Christ has been raised from the dead. So don't think that Paul's you know, trying to appeal to them or or something. He's actually showing how foolish they are. And here's their argument. They believed in Christ's resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead while at the same time denying future resurrection of believers. No one was denying that Christ had risen from the dead. But they were denying that believers would raise from the dead. And Paul wants them to see That there is a necessary link, a connection between these two resurrections. That is, if you deny our future bodily resurrection, you have denied Christ's resurrection. Here's why I know that. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So if our Christian bodies are not going to be raised from the dead, then you can be sure that Christ did not raise from the dead. So, in verses 14 through 19, he shows the implications. He gives seven necessary implications for a person who denies bodily resurrection. So, if someone denies our future resurrection, here's what it looks like. Here's the implications of that. What's the first one in verse 14? If a person denies... Our future bodily resurrection, what's the first implication of that? Our preaching is in vain. I was probably not talking about the method of preaching. not saying, you know, the the, the way that you speak is, is wrong. No, he's probably talking about the content of the preaching, the gospel. That our purpose for preaching is a waste. It's a waste of time for us to give the gospel to anyone. It's a waste of time for us to preach. If there is no future bodily resurrection. The second implication is found at the end of verse 14. What is it? Your faith is in vain. This goes along with verse 17 that we'll see here in just a second. Your faith is worthless. So all this work that you've done, this work of faith to believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, it's a big waste if there is no future bodily resurrection. What's the third implication in verse 15? For a person who denies future bodily resurrection, what is the third implication? Verse 15. Okay, it makes us false witnesses. Now, when he says us, or we there in verse 15, he might be referring to apostles there. So, And at the very most, he's referring to himself and the Corinthians but by extension or by application, it also includes us. That, that we become false witnesses of Christ. I mean, think of yourself as, as a witness on the stand in the courtroom that is, that is uh, charging the Christian faith with being false. Okay, So the Christian faith is on defense, and you are called to the witness stand. Paul's saying, you can't say anything. There is no future bodily resurrection. We're all false witnesses. We're telling a lie. There is no gospel. There is no future bodily resurrection. What's the fourth implication? Again, he states his point verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, uh, he says at the end of verse 15 as well, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And he says it again, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So here again, he's showing the inseparable link between Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. And what's the what's the fourth implication in verse 17? If if we don't believe in bodily resurrection, which is necessarily linked to Christ's resurrection, what is the fourth implication? Our faith is worthless. And then Mary, we're going to get to the next one there. You you get bonus point for going ahead there, but you are still in your sins. So first Your faith is worthless. If Christ has not been raised... Here's how it literally reads... uh, Literally translates from the Greek. If Christ has not been raised, worthless is your faith. You might say, well, that doesn't mean any difference to us. Well, in the English language it doesn't. But for Greek, they will put at the beginning of a phrase, a clause, sentence, the most emphatic word that they want to say. So in this case, they're saying... At the beginning of this clause, they're saying... um, If Christ has not been raised... Worthless is your faith. It's a big waste. What's the fifth implication at the end of verse 17? Mary already answered this one. We are still in our sins. Is Paul embellishing a little bit here? Or is is he right about this? If Jesus has not been raised and where is Jesus right now then if he has not been raised he's still in the still in the grave okay so if he's still dead is paul right would we still be in our sins and how do we know that right a dead savior is a condemned Savior. See, the Jews, the Romans, Satan, have actually won if Christ is still dead. True? And that means that we, that means that He has not defeated sin or death. What does that mean for us? We have not been freed from the penalty of sin. We're still under the wrath of God. We are not being freed from the power of sin that has a grip on us. And we will not be freed from the presence of sin, right? There's never coming a time when we will ever get out from under our sin or its judgment. And so Paul's right. If Christ is still dead, if he has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. We're still under the wrath of God. What's the sixth implication? Verse 18. Okay, so this is talking about these. Um, um, this is talking about believers or unbelievers. Believers. How do we know that? In Christ. Okay, good. So fallen asleep in Christ. So if bodily resurrection is a lie, then Christ is not raised, and if that's the case, then our dead believing loved ones are lost they are eternally condemned. Or, at very best, they are just annihilated at death like an animal. I mean, if Christ is still dead, if He has not raised from the dead, then why would any believer have any confidence or guarantee that they're going to rise from the dead? What hope do they have if if the greatest among us, our Savior, is still dead? We have no hope. And that leads to the last one here. The last implication of a person who denies future bodily resurrection. Verse 19, what is it? We are pitiful creatures. Or maybe a better way to say it is pitiable. We are to be pitied. Because we have set our hope on a Christ who is supposed to improve our future and our present. When, if this is true, future resurrection is false, Christ is still dead. If that's actually true, we're living a lie. We're without hope. We are pitiable. What a waste. We've wasted our lives. on something that's not true if there is no future resurrection. Now, I don't want you to go away from here feeling hopeless because that's not Paul's point, as we'll see in verses 20 through 28. So before we leave this section, let me take the logically flawed arguments from verses 13 to 19 and flip them on their head. Turn them upside down. And if you want to follow along with this um, modification that I've made to the text, just for our benefit see the positive spin A positive view of what Paul's saying. Okay? So I'm not changing trying to change the words of scripture, I'm just trying to show you that in Paul's point is implied this this idea. Here it is, beginning in verse thirteen. But since there is resurrection from the dead, then Christ has been raised. And since Christ has been raised, then our preaching is not in vain. And our faith also is not in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be true witnesses of God because we testify by God that He raised Christ, whom He actually did raise, since, in fact, the dead are raised. For since the dead are raised, then Christ has been raised. And since Christ has been raised, your faith is priceless, and you are freed from your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are alive. And since we have hoped in Christ both in this life and in the next, then we are of all men most to be admired. That's Paul's point. He's not trying to discourage us about, wow, what if this is false? What if I am believing a lie? He's trying to say, you fools. There is a future resurrection because Christ has been raised. That's how we know. So, Paul enters into their argument in verses 12 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 28, Paul makes his own argument. Since there was a bodily resurrection for Christ, there will be a bodily resurrection for us. Since there was a bodily resurrection for Christ, there will be a bodily resurrection for us. Again, we see this necessary link, this inseparable link between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. We know that we will rise from the dead because Christ did. We are united with him in his death. In fact, we're united with him in his life, his perfect life. That Remember, when God looks at us, he sees the works of Christ. But we're also united with him in his death, and we're united with him in his resurrection. So we can be sure that we will, and frankly the people in view here are the dead believers, our dead believing loved ones will also rise from the dead. So let's take a look at this. First, in verses 20 through 23, the restoration of God's design begins with the fall that led to our death. In verse 21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So here, Paul is contrasting the work, maybe not, maybe not be the best word, but the work of Adam and the work of Christ. When God created the human body, he created it to live forever. True or false? Let me ask it this way if you're not sure. If Genesis 3 never happened, would Adam be dead or alive right now? He'd be alive. He'd be living on this earth. see, we are united to Adam as humans. We are made of the same stuff as he. But that also means that because we're humans, we're also united to him in his death. Because he is our representative head and he sinned on behalf of all of us so that all have sinned, Romans 5 says. So sin and death were introduced into creation by Adam And they were passed on to us through the union of our parents. But that's not the end of the story, is it? What Adam brought into the world, sin and death, was conquered and will finally be destroyed by the second Adam, Christ, who will abolish both sin and death. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So in verses 21 and 22, he's basically just making a contrast between The first Adam and the second Adam, or you could say uh, Adam and Christ. So what God is doing then is he's working to restore what he originally designed. He designed the human body to live forever, and so now he's working through Christ to bring us to a place where we have bodies that are incorruptible. And that's what's going to happen when our bodies are glorified. And so we see the resurrection that leads to our life, beginning in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. What is is this idea of firstfruits? Any ideas? Yeah, so... Of the resurrection, right. Yeah. So he's using an illustration from the farming community uh, that the Old Testament believer would have understood, and New Testament believer also. That is, that when the harvest initially came in, they would take in some of the harvest to see what kind of uh, nature and quality the rest of the harvest would be. And uh, based on the quality of that fruit or grain or whatever they're bringing in, it would tell them what kind of crop they're going to bring in. The size of the crop apparently, that as far as the number of bushels and all that, and the quality of the, the actual um, grain. And so what Jesus serves for us is that He is the first fruits of our resurrection. That is, He was the first of the harvest. If you think about instead of food or crops that are growing up, people that are rising from the dead. Jesus is the first of that. So now we know the quality and the nature of our future resurrection is based on the fact that Jesus actually has risen from the dead. We, We will have similar features to his, right? So when he raised from the dead, we're not going to get into all this, but when he was risen from the dead, people actually recognized him by his voice and by his appearance. So in some way, our resurrection bodies are going to resemble our current bodies. Okay, probably a better form of them, but but that's the point. Um, So he was raised first. We will be raised after him, and then the end will come. Jonathan. Yeah, I, I don't know about that because that's the other thing. I, I was just thinking about that as, as we were talking. Um, because, yeah, there's the first fruits that was meant to be given to God, right? That, that they were supposed to bring the first of their, the best, really, of their harvest for a sacrifice, a, a fellowship offering to God. And so is Christ somehow an offering? I think there is another text that talks about him as an offering, but I don't, I don't know if those two are connected. So a good question. Um, so Adam brought death into the world Christ is the one who will abolish death see that again in verse um, 23 but each in his own order Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ's at his coming and then comes the end so Christ is going to abolish death and we'll we'll see more of that um, I think next week oh no that's in verse 26 the last enemy that will be abolished is death and Christ does that through his through his um, final coming, his uh, bringing the kingdom under subjection to his feet. So what God is working to do is restore his design for our bodies to to be incorruptible uh, so that they could live in the presence of God and live forever in the presence of God, never to face death or any type of temptation or sin. Um, That's what's going to happen in the next life. That leads to Um, this final section, verses 24 through 28, the consummation of God's plan. The consummation of God's plan. The reason I call this the consummation of God's plan is because this is the final crescendo of human history. And here's how... here's, Here's the high note at the end of the musical piece. Look at verse 28. At the very end. So that God may be all in all. So... When Christ abolishes death, the end is going to come. Everything's going to be in subjection to his feet. He's going to hand over the kingdom to God. Uh, he's going to hand over his authority to God. God will be all in all. Now, tough question, so don't answer it right away. Think about it for a second. Is everything in subjection to God right now? Okay, so you did answer it right away. Even though I told you not to. I would say yes and no. In one sense God is the sovereign ruler over all things and nothing is outside of his control, right? But the answer is also no because not everything is submitting themselves to God like they ought to. Now, think back in human history. Was there ever a time where everything was in subjection to God? How about before human history even? Okay. Before creation? Was everything in in subjection to God? We're talking about the Father here, by the way. Yes, from eternity past, all the way up until the Garden of Eden, everything was in subjection to God. And then the next question is, will there ever be a time when everything is, in the future, in subjection to God?
1: You can answer it really fast.
0: That's the consummation of human history. That's what I'm saying. That's the crescendo final crescendo so i think paul's saying here in verses 24 through 28 is that there's coming a day when everything will be back in order god on top everyone submitting to god everything and everyone will be submitting themselves to god as he originally designed and so here's what i think paul means at the end of verse 28 when he says that god may be all in all i think what he means is that god would be everything to everyone Everyone recognizes their position, whether they like it or not, even those in hell. That God is the king. God is the ruler over all. So that God is all in all. He is everything to everyone. One of the amazing consequences of a fallen world is that the fellowship that the father had with the son was broken. Have you ever considered that in light of eternity? In in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son were in perfect unity, perfect fellowship, enjoying one another's company, enjoying each other, loving each other. They were individuals, but they were united as God, united in purpose. And then God created the world, and the fellowship still remained as the triune God was active in creation. Right? All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made, we saw in John 1. So even Christ was active in creation. He was the agent of it, and the Spirit was hovering over the, the surface of the water, Genesis 1 says. So we have all three persons of the Godhead perfectly unified in perfect fellowship. But then, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And since that time, death has reigned upon all men because all have sinned, but still fellowship of God was not broken, even after sin. But this sin had to be paid for, didn't it? And death had to be defeated. And so the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And Christ came to the earth to become a man. And throughout his life, that fellowship was still there, wasn't it? Jesus was in perfect fellowship with his Father. He said, I and my Father are one. We are united in thought and purpose. Father, you want me to go to the cross? I'm going. Not my will, but yours be done. Perfect fellowship. But then, the time for Jesus to die came and that death created this, for the first time ever, this temporal separation between the infinite Son of God and the eternal Father. For three hours, fellowship was broken. And after his death, Christ was raised from the dead and reunited to his Father so that they would be restored to the fellowship that once was broken by our sin. And from that point into eternity future, the Father and the Son will be united never to have broken fellowship again. Why? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection was the catalyst that brought them together to remain forever. And we know that this oneness, this fellowship is eternal because of what will happen in the end. And what is that? Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So in the end, Christ will hand the kingdom back to God. And I say back to God because the keys to the kingdom have been handed to Christ. Daniel chapter 7 predicted that that would happen. And his job, Christ's job, son, was to restore order to the universe. So that when Christ is completed with his job of restoring order, getting all things back into subjection to his feet, not into subjection to Satan... But into subjection to Christ. Then what he's going to do is he's going to show his work to his Father, and he's going to show that he's done it by handing the kingdom, the authority of the kingdom, back over to the Father. But that can't happen until something else happens first, verses twenty-five to twenty-seven. And is this: Christ will hand the kingdom back to God when all enemies are destroyed. Christ will hand the kingdom back to God when all enemies are destroyed. So in order for Christ to reign, Satan and his forces have to be subdued. There was a time when Christ and the Father were in perfect fellowship, but since the sin of Adam, since the sin of the serpent, really, he stands in the way of this perfect order in the world, and one of his greatest weapons is death. So all these things need to be destroyed before Christ can have everything under subjection to his feet, before he can hand it back to the Father, before God is is seen to be all in all, everything to everyone. So let's look at the text and and see if we can see this. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in, in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he he is ex- accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So there's a little awkward language here in the New American Standard, and I didn't look at the other translations, but um, especially in verse 27, all things are put in subjection to him, but it's evident that he is accepted. What do you, who do you think he's talking about there? Who do you think Paul's talking about? Okay so all things are being put into subjection first to whose feet? Under whose feet? Christ. So when when Paul says or the when the prophet says all things will be put under subjection to Christ's feet, who is accepted? Who is not in subjection to Christ? God the Father, right? God the Father, God the Son are equal in essence but they're different in function. Right? The the Son is is subordinate to the Father. And so when it says that all things we put under subjection to Christ, Paul's saying, I'm accepting one person, the Father. He, he will never be put in subjection to the Son. He's always the authority. He's, fine. He's the final ruler of all. What Paul's saying is that he is accepted. God the Father is accepted. The final enemy in verse 26 is death. What's going to happen to death? Death is going to die, right? Kind of like we sang tonight. Death is dead. Christ is one. Right? But but think about Revelation 20, verse 14. Talking about the great white throne judgment. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. I'm going to read later from chapter 21 to show that death will never be in the eternal state. There will be no death. So, at the great white throne judgment, everything will be put in subjection to Christ, except one, the Father. This is what Christ and God have been working for throughout human history. Since the time of the fall, have been working to get everything back into a place where it's in subjection to the seed of Eve, including Satan, the demons, sinners who oppose God, and death itself. There's coming a day when Jesus will have his way with all of those enemies. Finally, in verse 28, we see that God's plan will be completed when the two kingdoms become one. God's plan will be completed when the two kingdoms become one. Notice verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be set... Subjected, <coughs> excuse me, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him. So, again, a lot of pronouns, and kind of hard to make sense of all of them, but basically the idea is that once everything is subjected to Christ, then this is when Christ hands over His, his authority or His finished work back to God and says, God, here you go. Finish the work that you set out for me to do. At that point, God the Father will rule over all as He desires. Now, this does not mean that Christ will no longer reign. Like, He kind of had this temporal period where He would reign. But rather, what I'm calling that two kingdoms will become one. No longer will there be two thrones. No longer will there be two kings. What I mean by that is, the Father's throne, that is, that God is the universal ruler over all things. That there is a sense, in, a sense in which everything is subjected to Him because He is the sovereign ruler and they have to do as He plans. But then there's a second kind of throne that the Father is not sitting on and never will sit on. That's the Messianic throne. But there's coming a day when those two thrones will become one. You see, God has always been the universal ruler over the kingdom of creation. But because of sin, God designed a second kingdom that would be made of the human race called the human race called the Davidic kingdom or the Messianic kingdom? And these two thrones were not in sync, were they?? Right? Did, did people in David's people that lived in the, the Davidic kingdom in the Old Testament, did they always obey the Father? you have God who is the universal ruler and He makes these commands from heaven and what does Psalm 2 say? No, they, they, they scoff at Him. We will not accept you or your Son. Even in the Millennial Kingdom, amazingly, when Jesus sits on the throne of David on this earth in Mount Zion or at Mount Zion, even then, will all things be in subjection under His feet? That's kind of a trick question. Will all things, Is there anyone who can resist Jesus inwardly during the Millennial Kingdom? Yeah, so there's going to be people that are born in the Millennial Kingdom. Born sinners. And they may um, conform themselves externally, but internally they will be full of dead men's bones. Like a, a beautiful sepulcher that's Nice and painted on the outside. That's actually going to happen in the millennial kingdom. So at that point, we still haven't merged these two kingdoms where God reigns and everything that he says is done. Because in Christ's kingdom, it still hasn't happened, even in the millennial kingdom. But there's coming a day when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever when Christ finally restores order to the earthly kingdom culminate what well, crescendoing in the destruction of Satan and all of his his friends that try to oppose Jesus at the end of the millennial kingdom but it actually culminates in the great white throne judgment where the wheat and the tares are divided up and now we know who's on the Lord's side and who is his enemy and it's at that time that Satan will be cast in the lake of fire with all of his demons and all those who oppose him. And then Jesus, the Christ, the Davidic king, will hand over his earthly kingdom to God the Father. And God will recreate the earth to be a place where he can dwell. And his kingdom that's in heaven now, the new Jerusalem, will come out of heaven and make its capital on the make its capital, its location, its center in the new heavens and the new earth and forever. It's not that Christ stops reigning. Now he reigns with the triune God, with God the Father, with God the Spirit. They all reign together on one throne in the new heavens and the new earth so that the prayer that Christians have been praying for centuries will come to pass. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? May your will be done on earth as what? So may your will be done in this kingdom as it's being done in heaven. When people are in heaven, they have to obey God. There's no defiance. There's no disobedience. God rules perfectly and all of His heavenly creatures are subjected to His feet. There's coming a day when these two kingdoms merge. And the triune God will have all things in subjection under his feet, so that as God desires in heaven, so will happen on the earth. And it is at that time, verse 28, that God will be all in all. God will be everything to everyone. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll finish here. Revelation twenty one. When these two kingdoms merge and Christ has already subjected all things under his feet, hands the kingdom back over to the Father, the kingdom's the kingdom of our Lord becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, nothing and no one will ever come between the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son. Nothing will ever again distort the perfect creation that God designed. I'm going to bounce around to some text, putting them up there for you. Um, Beginning in verse 3, Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Then skip down to verse 16. The city and its gates, uh, I'm sorry, the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles, and its length and width and height. Are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were uh, of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. He goes on to list those. And skip down to verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then skip down. Excuse me, chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. See how those two are combined. And His bond servants will serve Him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the lord god will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever so christian you can be confident in your eternal future you can be sure that the resurrection of christ is real And therefore, your union with Christ guarantees that you will be raised. You can guarantee that your message is not worthless. It's not in vain. It is priceless. That your faith is valuable. You can be sure that you are freed from your sins and that your dead, believing loved ones are alive and that they will be restored with a resurrected body. You can be sure that there is hope for your future. And as we'll see next time, you can be sure that it's worth it to take risks for Christ. Because we're not living for this life only. Rather, we're living for the life to come. Where our God will reign, having everything subjected to his feet, unresisted by any of his creation. Where Christ, where God, the Father, I should say, is all in all. He's everything, everyone. Any questions or comments?